Well, it's a real blessing to be here with you guys. I'm really thankful. It's really, being part of Saturday Wellspring, it's really, really helpful to come and get a face on Thursday Wellspring. Um, so thank you for having me this morning. You can go ahead and look at the back of your notebook. Um, every week, we remind ourselves of why we're here. The purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage us to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that we live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And as you know now, as you now know really well, um, we do that by focusing on three disciplines: the heart, the home, and ministry. And so today, rather than review each of these separately, I'd like you to pull out your Wellspring prayer handbook. Um, you can turn to page 25. If you don't have yours with you, just look on with your neighbor. Um, and I want to show you uh, how this could be a tool in a practical way to help us cultivate all three disciplines. And so I want to start here because, as you know, uh, this is the passage we're studying today. And as you've been hearing from Scott, this is all about us honoring Grace's instructions for us. But I want to share, because maybe some of you have felt the same way, that I haven't always understood that these verses were about honoring Grace's instructions. There was a time when I would come across these verses, um, and my response might look something like this. I would feel kind of like I'd been given a big bag of balls that I needed to juggle, and I needed to keep them all in the air all the time. And then when I would fail, I would feel really defeated, I would feel like, I just can't do this. And um, sometimes I felt like maybe I just wasn't cut out to be that kind of woman. I would look at really sweet, godly, kind women, and I would think I'm not like that at all. I'm not one of them. Um, but the problem with that kind of response, that's all about me, right? That's not about the gospel, and that doesn't honor Grace's instruction. And so... If I am earnest about anything that we talk about today, uh, it's that we all understand the gospel foundation under Titus 2. So thank you, Jenna. That was perfect to start with Titus 3. Um, and understanding that this is God's plan for all of us. This is his plan for the church. Um, and we, and I, I want to go through this so that hopefully we feel like we have some tools to helping us to learn how to respond to these verses in a way that does honor Grace's instruction. Um, now you might remember that in the earlier pages of the prayer manual, where there are suggested verses, suggested verses to guide our prayers day by day, there are verses listed that help us rehearse the gospel. And that's what we need to do first. When we're going to think about how to cultivate these qualities, we want to start with the gospel um, and remember what we were before Christ, where we remember what Christ did on the cross. We remember what he has purchased for us and what he has promised for us. And we want to remember that he has saved us into new life. And that that new life needs him desperately. And then when we've done that, we're ready to turn to page 25. And I want to give you one idea um, that might be helpful on how to respond in a way that honors God's grace, not the way I used to respond to Titus 2. One way we could use this to, tie to, to cultivate Discipline 1, Discipline 2, Discipline 3 all together would be to focus on one of these qualities that's 
down at the bottom list on the page and do that for one week at a time. And during that week, we could pray and review what that quality is. We could praise God for evidence of his, evidences of his grace where we're being reverent, for example. We, we ask the Lord, help me see where, where this is going well in my life. And we would also pray and ask God to show us where there's room for growth or a need for repentance. We would prayerfully commit to God a path for growth. And we could prayerfully consider, how can I help somebody else grow in this? How can I encourage them in this or be an example in this? And in doing that, over the course of a week, we would have taken time to reflect and think about what's going on at a heart level and to keep our efforts centered on God's grace. That would be discipline one. It gives us the chance to express that quality, focusing especially on our household and our family relationships. That's discipline two. And it also gives us a focused time to think about how we might encourage others in this way, and that would be discipline three. Now, if we did each one of these qualities for a week and we just kept cycling through, we would actually cover each one of these four times. That would be four weeks each year seeking the Lord's help to grow in each of these qualities. So I hope that that's helpful as we come to today's lesson to see one practical way we might respond um, that honors Grace's instructions that we find in Titus 2, 3 through 5, rather than letting ourselves wallow in discouragement um, when we struggle. All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray again, and then we'll open up to Titus 2. Heavenly Father, I am just so thankful for you, so thankful for what you have accomplished for us through your Son. Thank you that even now he ever lives to pray for us. You've given your Holy Spirit to live in us. You've given us your word. You have committed to finish the work you've begun in us. You are a great saving God. Thank you that you've saved us and made us one together as your people in the church. And thank you um, that you... You never leave us. I pray that right now you would guide my words, settle my heart and my mind, settle each, each one of our hearts and minds, prepare us to listen and to grow through what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, thank you. Go ahead and open up your Bible to Titus 2. And as you know, Scott Maxwell is preaching through the book of Titus on Sunday mornings, and he preached through this passage just a few weeks ago, so we have a chance to build on that today. And as with any passage of scripture, remembering and understanding the context is so important and so helpful in correctly understanding the passage. So I want you to help me set the context a little bit. Let's start with who wrote the book of Titus. Just shout it out. Paul, thank you. It was Paul. And what's the problem Paul is addressing? I'll tell you, because I know you already know. The churches in Crete are out of order, and that's why Paul left Titus there. And we've seen that for the church to be put in order, to be stable, to be established, it needs three things. It needs scrutinized leaders. It needs silenced lies. Remember, there are rebellious men who are upsetting whole families by teaching things that shouldn't be taught, and it needs sanctified lives. 
And in Titus 2, 3 through 5, we see the focus on this third one, the sanctified lives. Titus 3, 2, 3 through 5 gives instructions for the women in the church to live sanctified lives and to help one another live sanctified lives. So let's read together some verses in Titus 2. We'll begin with verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And I don't want to jump into these instructions without, one more time, looking at the gospel foundation under them. So let's jump down and continue reading in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That is what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And what are those good deeds? How do we obey grace's instruction to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly? Well, specifically for us as women, it's what we find in Titus 2, 3 through 5. So come to these verses encouraged. This is exactly what Christ redeemed us for, to be zealous for these good deeds so that we would clearly be seen to be his people and um, to realize that it's God's grace that instructs us. It's his undeserved favor toward us that's instructing us. This is his good rule in our lives. How gracious that God does instruct us how to live. So be encouraged. But we also need to come with a sobriety because grace's instructions are not optional. So if you've ever been tempted to respond like I did and think for some reason that this just isn't for you, that you can't do this, please understand, Paul's not saying, go clean up your act, go get it together. He's saying, there's a problem in the church. So remember who you are in Christ. Remember what God's grace does. And now listen to what he has saved you for and listen to grace's instructions for you and step in and by his grace, fulfill the role, grow in the role that God has given you to strengthen your household and your church. Christ has saved you out of all that you were and he has purified you to be his own possession, zealous for good deeds and your church needs you. Other women need you. And you need other women. Now, these instructions are deliberate. They're God's design for us to display the transforming power of the gospel in our lives so that we can encourage one another, so that our households are protected, so that our church is strengthened, so that we would give the world no reason to discredit God's word and its crown jewel, the gospel. So let's turn to page two of our worksheet. And we will read verses 3 through 5 again. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, 
not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. We're going to summarize our passage with the statement that you have on your outline. The word of God is honored through gospel-transformed older women training gospel-transformed younger women. Now we're at Roman numeral one on the outline, what older women transformed by the gospel must be. So we'll start by talking about what's meant by older women. The text doesn't indicate a specific age range, and as we heard from Scott, commentators uh, tend to think it re is referring to women who are 50 or 60, probably describing women who, whose children are grown. Um, but older is a relative term. There was a time at this church when women approaching 30 were older. <laughs> and all you really need to do to be older is find someone who is younger, younger than you are. There you go. All of us are older than somebody. <laughs> Even uh, those who are younger women are examples to the younger girls in our church so that those girls grow up seeing the impact God's work is making in the lives of those young women that they look up to. Um, and each season of life will bring us new perspectives that need to be shared with those younger than we are. Younger women are encouraged as we are transparent and share our own struggles to share how God is at work in our lives. So practically speaking, I find it helpful to think of myself as both an older woman and as a younger woman. We can think of ourselves as the older woman as we have opportunities for encouraging those who are younger. And sometimes they're younger in years, sometimes they're younger in knowing the Lord. And we can think of ourselves as younger women looking for what we can learn from those who are older or perhaps more mature in the Lord than we are. And we can look for ways to strengthen our church through the relationships we have with other women in the church. It might be friendships. It could be how we serve or in our small group. It might be here in Wellspring. We also have a mentoring ministry for women. There are times when we might benefit from a more formalized relationship with an older or younger woman. So if you're interested in that, talk to Chris. That's one of her ministries is to connect women who are looking for that kind of relationship. Um, and so let's talk more about what the older woman is to be. The character of the gospel-transformed older woman is described in four ways. She's reverent in her behavior, she's not a malicious gossip, she's not enslaved to much wine, and she teaches what is good. Her life is to set an example that others can follow. And these qualities are a package. They go together. Together, they make her the kind of woman who's ready to encourage and train younger women. So what is reverence? Well, the word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple, like a priest in a sacred place. Paul is saying that the older women are to do everything with a view towards worshiping God. We are to see all of our lives as set apart for God. Scott said that we know we are becoming more and more reverent in our behavior when our worship is less compartmentalized and instead becomes an overarching part of what we do. Our sense of being set apart for God isn't just a part of our church activities or our time alone with God and his word, but more and more it permeates um, our behavior, our demeanor, all day long, no matter what time it is, 
no matter what we're doing, no matter how tired we are or how much we have to do. And as I think about the reverent women I know, they are women who deeply understand how badly they need the Lord every minute. And as they've grown older, they have fought the temptation to fear the future, to fear aging and the unknowns of failing health, death, finances. And they have fought that by fearing the Lord. They know they are weak, and they know they are needy, and they know God is trustworthy. And the only way we can cultivate that kind of reverence, that kind of growing understanding of our own weakness and God's trustworthiness and his faithfulness is day by day, year after year, drawing near to the Lord in his word and prayer and continuing to grow and shepherding our hearts throughout the day, every day. It won't just happen because we get older. It's a commitment to a Godward focus, trusting him, believing in his sovereignty and his goodness in such a way that it shapes our mindset, our disposition. It's desiring his glory above all. And that is what God's grace in the gospel makes possible in our lives. It's what grace instructs us to be. Well, number two on the outline is not malicious gossips. And as Scott pointed out, that Greek word is used 34 times in the New Testament for Satan, the one who accuses and slanders us before God. Paul is saying we must not allow ourselves to be like that in our words or even in our thoughts. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to accuse someone in your mind, to assume they have a sinful motive, to keep a record of their wrongs, to be critical, judgmental, to be more concerned with their sin than with our own? And if that's how we're thinking, then is it any wonder when we find ourselves with an appetite for gossip, for speaking critically of others, or for hearing the latest garbage? Ladies, isn't it a scary thought to think that an appetite for accusations is following Satan's example? But we've been set free from that. God's grace in the gospel instructs us to deny this ungodliness. And now we are being made more and more like our Savior, who is our advocate, not our accuser. You might want to write down 1 John 2.1. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So how do we fight being malicious gossips, being accusers, even in our thought life? Well, first we repent. We turn away from gossip and accusations in our thoughts, in our words, in what we read and what we listen to. And we turn to Jesus, our advocate, and we imitate him. We thank him that he is our advocate. And we advocate for others in prayer rather than finding sinful satisfaction in accusing them. We make charitable assumptions about others' motives. And we forgive. Let's not miss how reverence protects us from malicious gossip and accusations. When we are reverent in our behavior, our focus is Godward. And when our eyes are on the Lord, the idea of accusing others in our minds 
or pushing others down in the eyes of others can be seen for the ugliness and sin that it is. It quickly loses its appeal. Well, number three is not enslaved to much wine. Now, nowhere does Paul totally forbid wine, but in multiple places he condemns drunkenness. And here, older women are exhorted not to be enslaved to much wine. The emphasis is on the word enslaved. It's a term of bondage. It could be wine. Obviously, that was a problem with the women in the churches at Crete because that's what Paul addressed here. And Scott pointed out that many in the world see alcohol as an escape. But the reality is that it only enslaves those who seek to escape by it. And alcohol is not the only thing that enslaves that enslaves when one seeks to escape or find comfort through it. Could be food, could be entertainment, shopping, our phones, even exercise. It's anything where we might be seeking to escape or find relief or satisfaction or comfort apart from Christ as if he alone isn't enough for us. It goes back to being reverent in our behavior. Am I seeking to worship God in all things, or am I seeking to serve myself? Ask God, or maybe someone you live with, to show you if there is any area of your life that's not honoring to him, where you might be allowing yourself to be enslaved. Because if it's not dealt with, it will affect our relationships and our ability to care for one another. So the reverent woman is a woman who is shepherding her heart away from gossip and a thought life that's full of accusations, away from enslavement to find her joy and her comfort, her peace, in her Savior, Jesus. That's the fruit of the gospel in an older woman's life. And then finally, number four, Paul says that the older women are to teach what is good. She's a teacher of what is holy and godly. And where does that come from? comes from God's word. It's the word that gives us God's wisdom. Teaching what is good is not only giving our opinions and experiences, although that can be very, very helpful at times, but we also need to be women who bring others to God's word and then encourage each other to believe it, to align our hearts and our minds with it, and to obey it. This isn't necessarily formal teaching. It includes conversations texts, our example, it's any way we have an opportunity to influence one another. So, we've looked at the older woman, and so let's ask ourselves, are we planting ourselves in the word of God and positioning ourselves to grow in being this kind of woman that God loves for us to be and that grace instructs us to be so that we can encourage younger women? It's interesting that in Titus, Um, It wasn't Titus who was told to do this. Titus was a godly man, but he wasn't the right person to encourage the young women to live in this way. The church needed and still needs godly older women to do this. Older women who understand God's grace, women who understand that God's grace saves us and instructs us and who are living gospel-transformed lives so that we can help other women grow in living gospel-transformed lives as well, both in our words and our example. Well, that brings us to Roman numeral two on your outline. 
what transformed older women must train the young women to be. All right, verse 4 begins, so that they, the older women, may encourage the young women. Now, encourage here means to train, to advise, to urge. It's an ongoing influence. From the older woman's perspective, we need to realize that training isn't something that just happens once and then you move on. It takes practice, takes encouragement, perseverance, takes gentleness. And as younger women, we need to have humble, teachable hearts that recognize our need for this training. Look for what you can learn from godly women that God has put in your life. Ask questions. Sometimes to the most unexpected women, the Lord will teach us lessons that we never would have known we even needed to go looking for. So once again, let's look at Titus 2, and we'll read verses 4 and 5 again. Older women are to be this way so that they may encourage or train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be dishonored. We're to train and urge the young women to make deliberate use of every aspect of their lives to honor God's word. That's what this is saying, to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. So let's look at that first quality, to love her husband. In the Greek, this is literally a husband lover. It describes who a woman is, not just what she does. A wife is to pursue being devoted to her husband, cherishing him, being friends with him. And this is all the more astounding when we remember that most Cretan marriages were arranged. In that setting, a woman who truly and deeply loved her husband would stand out as a representative of the gospel. And with all of the confusion going on in our culture about marriage, we have a huge opportunity to stand out as gospel representatives by the way we treasure biblical marriage and love our husband. Although today marriage is based on personal choice and love, this is still a kind of love that must be learned. It's something a woman grows into. It's learned as it's practiced. It's sadly all too easy for a critical spirit to creep into our attitudes toward our husbands. And so we have to cultivate this love and encourage one another in this to have a loving, fond affection for our husband that's not based on whether he deserves it or not, but because it's what honors God. A married woman has the privilege of lavishing God's grace on her husband just as God has lavished his grace on her. Each wife must learn to love her own husband, her own husband. And that means we have to get to know him, study him, ask him, how she can be most helpful to him. And so how do we teach this? How do we learn this? The first thing we need to keep in view is that we need to understand God's purpose for marriage. It's a picture of Christ and the church. You've heard that before this year. And marriage is about displaying the self-giving love of the Godhead. It's not primarily about what makes us happy. I think Jamie talked about that, didn't she? God wants to use our challenges and struggles to draw us closer to him, 
to grow our character so that we reflect him in our marriages. And when we understand God's purpose, then we can see our struggles as God's tool to conform us to his image. We will begin to look more like Christ as we give up selfishness and control. And then number two, we need to understand the priority of this relationship. This relationship is listed first. After our relationship with Jesus, our husband is to be first in our heart, first in our mind, first in our priorities. That means he's our priority before our children, before ministry, before activities, before work. It's easy to get so busy that things get turned around. And we find ourselves expecting our husbands to help us because I have so much to do. And forgetting that God created the woman to be a suitable helper to her husband. That doesn't mean that our husbands don't serve or can't serve, but we should have an attitude of thankfulness, not entitlement. And so we need to encourage one another to give our best to our husband, to be thoughtful of him, to be respectful of him. Ephesians 5.33 says the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And the verse doesn't say if he deserves it. That's how the world thinks. But the gospel is put on display when we respect our husband out of love for God. It honors God when we have a heart attitude that joyfully serves our husband, that finds joy in putting his needs above our own, that treats our husband like he really is our best friend, not comparing him to anyone else. This is the kind of love in which young women need to be trained and encouraged. Well, number two is lovers of children. And although the most obvious application is to mothers, we have many opportunities to love and cherish children. There are children all around us, all around us we can love, especially here at Grace Bible Church. And it's so encouraging to see the many ways in which you all are children lovers. Loving our children means we are to cherish and enjoy children. This is a love that's selfless and affectionate. And you would think this love would come naturally. And most mothers do have a natural affection for their children most of the time. Um, But that can be strained. Maybe it's 1 a.m., you're exhausted, maybe because your little ones are awake or your older ones aren't home. Or there are things you really need to get done, and your children just need you. Remember, this wasn't written when they had all the modern conveniences that we do. It takes a lot of work to shepherd children, to love them enough to be consistent, to seek their forgiveness when we sin against them, to be faithful with training, discipline, meaningful conversations, Mothers can be easily discouraged. We can lose sight of the influence that God has designed us to have in spite of our insecurities, our weaknesses, and our failures. It can start to feel like a burden, but we need to remind each other a lot that loving children is one of God's priorities for us. It's second in the list after loving our husband. Loving children and parenting must not be seen as an inconvenience. They're a privilege. God places a great value on this role, and so must we. 
It has eternal value. Do you remind young moms of that? Do you remind yourself of that? Young moms are providing an environment where children can learn the things of God. And a mother's unselfish service as she meets their needs is the perfect setting to begin communicating to them the selfless love of God. Some stages are easier than others, but as we persevere in loving children, we again get to show such a contrast with the world. This is grace's instruction for us. Well, that brings us to sensible. And being sensible deals primarily with the mind or thought life. It means that we're not to run for the edges or extremes in our thought life, but instead strive for reserved, balanced thinking that's not easily moved off center. One way Scott explained it is that being sensible will lead us not to blow things out of proportion in our mind. It will lead us to give every situation its proper weight, nothing more, nothing less than it should truly bear. This is such an important exhortation for us because what happens when we do allow our thoughts to run to extremes? We get test results from the doctor, and if we're not being sensible, we can convince ourselves we've got one foot in the grave already, right? We can easily give in to fear and anxiety. Or someone might be a little short with us, a little curt. Maybe they don't reply to a text or something. If we're not being sensible, we can so quickly run to extremes. They must be mad at us. My job's on the line. Or I feel kind of hurt because I feel a little offended that they didn't get back to me. We, or we, maybe we read an article about something on the internet. Maybe it's vaccinations or schooling options or how many carbs to eat, whatever the issue is. And if we're not being sensible, we can run to extreme positions that aren't careful to guard our relationships with those who have different positions than we do. We give it more importance than it deserves. In all of these cases, a failure to be sensible brings us to focus more on ourselves than on the Lord. It's a good way to evaluate, am I being sensible? Where's my focus? Being sensible turns us to the Lord, trusting him with those test results from the doctor or praying for the person who seems to be having a bad day, seeking the Lord for wisdom in the choices we make. This is grace's instruction for us so that even in our thinking, we're protecting the honor of God's word. Well, that brings us to pure. And this word means to be morally pure in all ways, including sexual purity. Grace instructs us to be pure, to be holy in every dimension of our life, from the inside out. It's purity of heart, mind, conduct. It will be seen in our speech, our clothing, our relationships. Scott said something that was so impactful about purity. He said, if we never let into our hearts one impure scene from outside of us, not one thing, we would still have enough impurity in our own hearts to deal with for a lifetime. So don't heap more impurity on your mind by letting your screen, maybe it's your TV, your phone, your computer, maybe it's what you're reading. Don't let anything funnel more impurity into your mind. 
So how good are you at detecting impurity and fleeing from it? What do you do when an impure thought goes through your mind? Or when you're tempted to be careless with how you dress or to dress for attention? Or when you're tempted to watch or read something that makes immorality look okay just because it's a good story? What has God provided for us? Well, he commands us to flee. He commands us to repent. And we remember the cleansing and the new life we have from Christ at the cross. And we turn away from that impurity and we take hold and run hard after that which is pure and good. The more we guard our hearts from external impurities and we fight to kill the impurities from within us, the more grace's instruction is honored, the more God's word is protected from dishonor. And then we have workers at home. This describes a woman who has a heart for her household, who understands the value and the priority of the work and the relationships and the opportunities in her home. And again, this needs to be learned. Now, we need to be careful how we understand this. If we're not employed outside our home, we can't assume that we are workers at home. There are many opportunities for laziness, busyness, self-centeredness, misplaced priorities that take us away from being workers at home. Paul expressed concern for this in 1 Timothy 5. And 2 Timothy 3, if you want to read more about that. If we are employed outside our home or we are working from home, we must not conclude that we can't be workers at home or that it's not our responsibility to be. This quality isn't optional for any of us in any season of life. Just like being pure, just like being sensible, it describes who we are in Christ not just what we do for a certain period of our lives. This is a heart quality that's necessary for the honor of God's word. It's important. It's grace's instruction for us. And one reason Paul is concerned with us being homeworking women is because of the importance that God places on the home. In the New Testament, households are noted for hosting and serving churches, extending hospitality, training children, teaching the gospel, <coughs> instructing in sound doctrine and godliness, and refreshing believers, including missionaries and even those in prison. The house, the house, the household, the home is important to God's work in the church. It's essential. And as women, we have a role as workers in our homes. We must not let our homes hinder God's work. So what does the work of a household include? The greatest priority is to love and nurture the people who live there. It means being faithful with the work that a household requires, being good stewards of all God has entrusted to us, and learning diligence in managing the many tasks so that as much as it's up to us, our home is a place that reflects the gospel work in our lives and in our relationships. 
Being a worker at home means choosing to find joy in the many opportunities for serving others where we live. And that takes time. For the married woman with children who are at home, it means choosing to find contentment in helping our husband and shepherding our children. And there are seasons when this work leaves very little room for anything else, even very good things. And so how does that leave us to think about work outside the home? Well, if we think about the Proverbs 31 woman, she's busy buying fields, selling garments, thinking of people beyond her home, but it's clear that there was nothing contradictory to her being a worker in her home. She was still caring for the needs of her household, and everything she did outside of the house was so that her work inside her home was enhanced and improved on, so that those within her household were blessed all the more when she was with them. It wasn't for selfish gain, and that was evident to those in her household. Lydia, in Acts 16, is another example. She was a businesswoman, and she was hospitable. She pleaded with Paul for the privilege of um, hosting him and the others in her home. Ministering with her home was one of the first evidences of God's grace at work in her when God opened her heart to respond to the gospel. So there are circumstances when a woman works outside the home or when she's engaged in something to earn money from her home. And if you're married, especially if you have children, it's a weighty decision to engage in this kind of additional work, either outside of our home or working from our homes. This is a decision that needs to be made carefully with your husband's leadership as together you evaluate, if this, is this the best thing for your walk with the Lord, for your marriage, for your family, for your church, in your particular season of life? Or you may need to work outside the home or from your home in order to submit to your husband. But even in these circumstances, there needs to be a clear way for every woman to be a worker at home. To be undistracted from the things God calls us to do in our homes. So if you do work outside your home or you work from your home, here's what you need to do. Be a home-working woman who also works outside your home or from your home. And do it without guilt. If this is what God has for you, do it without guilt and do it as serving the Lord. And recognize it will be difficult at times. And there may be a lot of other good things that you have to say no to. But you can trust your Savior, your Master. If this is what he has for you, then his grace is sufficient for you. If this is his plan for you to give him glory and for you to be made more like Jesus right now. Either way, whether you're working outside your home or you do your job from home or your job is your home, we're all called to be home-working women. So please shepherd your heart. Don't be weighed down by sins and led by impulses. Don't be idle, easily distracted by all the things that can take our focus and attention away from this important work and especially these important people in our homes. Don't let discontentment take you away from the work God has for you in your home, but rather protect the honor of God's word by embracing the value he places on your work 
in your home and be faithful to joyfully nurture and serve the people there. And if that's a struggle for you, find an older woman to help you cultivate a heart for the work in your home and especially the relationships in your home. Well, that brings us to kind. Now, this word kind is more often translated good in the New Testament. It's a kindness or goodness that comes from the heart and then overflows into words and actions that benefit others. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, you can write that reference down if you want, Luke 6.45, the good man, same word, good, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. So we're back at Discipline 1 again. The way our hearts get filled with good treasure is by meeting with God in his word. This kind of good treasure from God's word in our hearts will produce kindness in what we do, like what we do as women who are home workers. It's interesting how kindness follows right on the heels of workers at home. Often our heart attitude is most clearly revealed right in our own homes with those relationships. And sadly, very often our household is where we can be most careless with kindness. We might start keeping track in our mind of who has served more, who's emptied the dishwasher more often, or we might not think it's important to be careful with our tone of voice, our facial expressions, our body language to be certain that they express kindness and give grace along with our words and actions. But since genuine kindness is something that God produces in our lives and it flows out of us from our hearts, then it cannot be based on how someone else is acting or how they're treating us. It's not a reaction to those around us, but rather it's a reflection of our Heavenly Father. Luke 6.35, Jesus said, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. God is at work to sanctify us and make us more and more like himself. His grace instructs us to be kind, especially when it's not deserved. And God uses us in one another's lives to teach us kindness. And that brings us to number seven, being subject to their own husbands. What do you think about submission? You know, before Christ, all we wanted was self-rule. And now, as those who are new creations in Christ, we can still find that residue of sin, of wanting to grasp for self-rule, even though God places us under authority at many different levels and always for our good. And so we need to let our minds be transformed by the truth of God's word and encourage younger women to think biblically about submission as well. Now, being subject means to voluntarily place oneself under. Voluntarily place oneself under. It's placing ourselves under. It's not waiting for someone else to tell us that we have to get in line. It's not something we only do when someone is watching. We're lining ourselves up under our husband's leadership. 
Now, we've talked several times this year about the way in which marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So let's think for a moment about the kind of submission from the church that honors Christ. You know, Christ is honored by a church that submits joyfully, following her Savior freely and gladly and trustingly, even when she doesn't understand why. Christ is not magnified and exalted as he ought to be with joyless compliance or mindless submission. And so in the same way, we honor Christ, we honor grace's instruction when we submit to our husbands in everything with joy of our own volition, gladly, even as we trust Christ. Grace's instruction is not honored by joyless compliance or mindless submissiveness to our husband. Submission in marriage is a great privilege because we get to display the submission of the church to her Savior. But if submission is such a great thing, why can it still be such a struggle? Well, we could point to a lot of things, but ultimately the biggest struggle comes because of our own sinful hearts. We love to rule ourselves. We love to trust in ourselves. We love to think we're right. And so we need to realize that our battle with submission is not a battle against our husband. It's a battle with the sin in our own hearts. We are our own worst enemy when it comes to submission. We need to remember that the Lord is trustworthy. He's the one we're trusting and honoring when we submit whether or not our husband deserves it. It's done willingly without being contentious. You guys had a lesson on that last week, didn't you? We need to agree as often as we can. It doesn't mean we never speak up or share our opinion, particularly about major decisions. We do need to speak up in appropriate, helpful, respectful ways at the right time. But... We shouldn't make it a habit to think that every decision our husband makes has to be discussed with us. Just because he doesn't do something the way we would doesn't make his way wrong. I know, it's tempting to think that. Remember, God created Eve to be a suitable helper to Adam. And so that can help us evaluate, am I being helpful? Or am I being wearisome or contentious? What would my husband say? What would my children say? It's also important to understand that submission doesn't mean that we follow our husband into sin. If we see a sinful pattern in our husband that's detrimental to our family, but our husband doesn't agree, we need to make a gracious, gracious appeal. A gracious appeal. We need to ask our husband if together we can obtain counsel, maybe from an elder in the church or from a godly couple. Being a suitable helper in the truest sense of the word may mean humbly requesting assistance when we're concerned about the consequences to our family of our husband's choices. But always 
always, always, that's done with much prayer and examining ourselves for the log in our own eye first before we try to help our husband with the speck in his. And always with the utmost respect and humility. Well, let's finish talking about this virtue with 1 Peter 3. Beginning in verse 1, it says, In the same way, now he's pointing back here to Christ at the cross and his submission to the Father, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So what is the instruction even for this kind of husband who's disobedient to the word? Be submissive. Let them see your pure and respectful behavior. Verse 3 says your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. See, submission begins in the heart by cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit. And again, that's why discipline one is our foundation. There's no way to cultivate genuine biblical submission without faithfully submitting ourselves to God and his word. There is protection when we come under the headship of our husband. And we can't assume that all women understand this principle of submission. It's just so contrary to the world's messages. We all need to understand and help others understand that this puts God's character on display. It displays Christ's character as he submitted to his father. We all need to be encouraged that submission strengthens our families, it strengthens our church, and it honors grace's instruction as it protects the honor of God's word. It matters. It's about our heart and our willingness to trust God and submit to him by submitting to our husband. We need to spur one another on in that. Well, finally, that brings us to Roman numeral three. What happens when transformed women are all they should be? Now, Titus 2.5 gives us the reason for everything we've talked about here. It's so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, at this point, we might be thinking... Well, there's no way I can help a younger woman in some of these areas because I have so far that I need to grow. But remember the lesson that Chris taught way back at the beginning of the year? We're all in a mixed condition. We're all going to have our struggles. And God is going to bring the growth as we obey, as we persevere, as we encourage one another. You know, John the Baptist said he was unworthy to even untie Jesus' sandals. And he still did what God gave him to do. In Ephesians 3, Paul said said that to him, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So why did Paul, the least of all saints, proclaim the gospel? It was God's grace to him. He was honoring grace's instruction to him. And it's God's grace to us to be part of one another's lives as reverent older women, encouraging younger women, 
as teachable younger women receiving encouragement and training from older women. What a privilege to honor Grace's instruction and to protect the honor of God's word. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you again for your grace. Thank you for your perfect design for salvation. Thank you that you did not save us, but leave us as we were. But you've made us new. You have made us your own. You have brought us near. Thank you so much for your grace that permeates your relationship with us from eternity past to eternity future. Thank you for your instructions. Lord, I pray for each one of us as we think about this, as we ponder this. Lord, let our hearts be soft and sensitive to where you want to convict us. Let us be encouraged for your intention, your power, your commitment to finish what you've begun in us. And Lord, I just pray that our, our, our own hearts would be encouraged, our families would be built up and encouraged, and our church would be strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen.